gifts are subject to law. The law and the commandments are like the banks that the river of spiritual gift and power must flow within. When the river overflows the banks, the whole world turns to mud and mire. And we've seen far too much of that in the church in recent generations. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Gifts are subject to law. Spiritual gifts are given to build up the church, Old Testament and New, and so they must be used and exercised in particular ways. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 31. This chapter brings us to the end of a section within the book that began at Exodus 20, verse 1. Douglas Stewart puts it this way, Since oral reception of the Ten Commandments began the whole process of legal revelation on Sinai in the first place, 20, verse 1, it becomes obvious that 20, verse 1 through chapter 31, verse 18, concluding with the description of written reception of the Ten Commandments, forms a coherent unit and that that unit is nearing its end with the present commands, closed quote. I think it'd be difficult to argue with that analysis. Chapters 32 to 34 are narrative in form and will tell the story of Israel's rebellion and the remarkably gracious covenant renewal that immediately followed. And then chapters 35 to 40 will tell the story of how the tabernacle was actually built and finally erected and visibly and gloriously indwelt by the presence of the Lord. So we are standing upon a hinge, as it were, in the book of Exodus. Instructions have been given, and now a team will be assembled and some parameters established, and thus shall conclude Moses' fifth journey up the holy mountain to meet with God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamech, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table, and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his son for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Old Testament and New, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the house of the Lord. 
The Apostle Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, 4-5, when he says, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Closed quote. The Corinthians, of course, were fascinated with the gift of tongues. And Paul is not seeking here to delegitimize tongues, but to deprioritize tongues. The purpose of spiritual gifts, he says, is to build up the church. He goes on to say in verse 12 in the same chapter, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Close quote. So spiritual gifts, Old Testament and New, are given to build up the church, and they must be exercised in strict obedience to the law. Look at verse 11b. These gifted people, gloriously equipped by the Holy Spirit, must do all according to all that I have commanded you. So gifts are subject to law. The law and the commandments are like the banks that the river of spiritual gift and power must flow within. When the river overflows the banks, the whole world turns to mud and mire. And we've seen far too much of that in the church in recent generations. Now, of course, I don't think that we would want to attempt to develop an entire theology of spiritual gifts from this passage in Exodus, but I also don't think we should ignore this passage in Exodus when we are thinking comprehensively about spiritual gifts. This passage establishes the principle that God gives by his Spirit what is needed and what is appropriate at every stage of the redemptive process so that his people can serve him and represent him in keeping with their calling. And this is why I've never been entirely comfortable with words like cessationism. A gift may certainly cease. God may give a certain gift for a certain season for a particular reason. And then the reason may be fully met, and thus the gift may no longer be required. But should a similar need arise again in the future, God would by no means be restrained from giving it again. God is sovereign over the gifts. He knows what he is doing, and he gives what is required so that we as his people can give him glory. Thanks be to God. I prefer to leave it at that. Pastor Paul, let me jump in here for a second because I really like how you said that. I do feel like the whole spiritual gift conversation tends to land in the ditch on either side of the road that we see in Holy Scripture. Some people do kind of seem obsessed with certain gifts, and that's probably not good. But other people tend to make pronouncements about those gifts that seem to go beyond what we see in the Bible, too. So maybe unpack that middle road that you were talking about there in the program audio, because it seems like that road is really hard to find and almost impossible to hold in the modern-day church. Yeah, I think a lot of the times we're more reactionary in our theology than we'd like to admit. We all like to think that we're pulling our beliefs out of the text. Certainly in my circles, we like to tell ourselves that. And our, on our best days, that's probably true. More often than not, however, we're human beings. And, and we need to acknowledge that sometimes we're just doing what we've seen done. And sometimes we're really just reacting to what we've seen done. 
yeah, kind of like how as parents, we're always either imitating our own parents or overreacting to what our parents did and instead of taking our parenting philosophy out of the pages of the Bible. Yes, exactly. We, we are reacting instead of thinking more often than probably we'd all like to admit. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, I think some people are just repeating what has been said to them instead of doing the hard work and building a biblical approach to this matter. While other people are often just reacting to excesses and abuses that they've personally experienced. So some people are saying, well, I don't want to be one of those people obsessed with speaking in tongues. So I'm going to say that no one speaks in tongues by the Spirit of God. Well, that would be hard to support biblically since the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 5, I want you all to speak in tongues. So why would we forbid or deny what the Apostle Paul affirms and commands? That doesn't make sense to me. But neither does it make sense to elevate speaking in tongues as if it is the one true sign gift and as if if you don't have it, you might not even be a Christian. When the Apostle Paul also says, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue, 1 Corinthians 14, 19. So Paul says that it's better to speak for five seconds with your mind, better to share a Bible verse and a related encouragement for five seconds than to speak for an hour in tongues. That's the ratio. That's the hierarchy that exists in Paul's mind. He is saying that speaking in tongues is, is real. It's a real spiritual gift, and therefore I'd be happy if everyone had it. But then he says, it's not the most important gift. In fact, five words of straight-up Bible encouragement is worth more than 10,000 words in a tongue. So the Bible says that speaking in tongues is real, but it is not ultimate. It is a lesser gift but it is almost impossible to find an evangelical today who holds that perspective, even though it is the perspective clearly taught in the Bible. Folks tend to either deny it or idolize it instead of just letting God be gone. Hmm. Yeah, I like what you said in the program audio about trusting God to give out whatever tools he thinks are required for each stage of the job or something to that effect. Yeah, I think the simplest approach and the most biblical approach is just to say that God is sovereign over the giving of the gifts. He, he's the master of the tool shed. He knows what gifts are needed during each stage of the project. Some tools might be necessary when you're laying the foundation that are not necessary when you're installing the windows on the third floor. So to, to put feet on this, we might go back centuries when a certain gift is not widely known. Well, so be it. But then all of a sudden it might come back. That's fine too. God knows what he's doing. So I say we live those sorts of decisions up to him. So what if someone says, though, I have a certain gift, and therefore I should be given the opportunity to use that gift in this church? What do we do then? Well, first of all, I get very nervous whenever someone talks like that, because <laughs> the church is not a stage for you to display your gift on. The, the church is a group of people serving each other and serving Christ. So no one gets to demand a platform for the display of their gifts. That's a huge red flag for me. Rather, I think you should go to the leaders of your church and say instead, how can I help? What needs doing? How can I contribute to what this group is doing for the glory of God and the good of the people in this city? That's a way better question. And, and then I would say expect to discover within your community the gifts that best align with the opportunities and particular callings that God has assigned to you. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. He says, for we are what he has made us to be, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So there's a connection 
between what God calls us to do and how God equips us. So pay attention to those connections. What has God called your group to do? What opportunities has he opened up for you? Where are you in the development stage of that opportunity? Figure those things out and then look for gifts and equippings that correspond to those good works which he has prepared in advance to be your way of life. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I love the idea of starting with the good works he has prepared for us and then looking to see and identify the gifts and abilities that correspond to that need and that particular stage of the project, which is very much like what we are seeing here in Exodus 31. So let's jump back into that story now at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from his people. Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The key to understanding why this paragraph is inserted here is likely that phrase in the middle of verse 13, above all, or as the JPS Torah translation has it, nevertheless, you must keep my Sabbaths. What God is saying here is that the urgency of building this tabernacle and the importance that has been placed on corporate worship does not mean that the Sabbath law can be disregarded. Even this most important of work must stop on the seventh day so that God's people can rest and worship as they were created and saved to do. Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarna puts it this way, The tabernacle enshrines the concept of the holiness of space. The Sabbath embodies the concept of the holiness of time. The latter takes precedence over the former, and the work of the tabernacle must yield each week to the Sabbath rest. Close quote. We must never trample on one principle in order to pursue another. Wisdom and obedience must go hand in hand. Or as it has often been said, we must be committed to doing God's work God's way. There is no pragmatism in the Bible. There is no doing something shady in order to get a result. No, above all, God says, keep my Sabbaths. Despite the urgency of the task, obey me, trust me, come away from your labors and rest. Verse 17 says that this Sabbath rest, even in the midst of urgent labors, is to be a sign forever between God and the people of Israel. And it must have been. It was one of those things that marked off the Jews as distinctive from their neighbors. It was a demonstration of faith. It was a sign and a clear indicator to 
all of their surrounding peoples and neighbors that these people were about more than simply work and profit. These people were living essentially God-centered lives. That was the idea. And of course, as Christians, we're very interested in precisely how this principle ought to be transposed into a New Testament key. God willing, I plan to do an excursus episode on the principle of Sabbath at the conclusion of this series. But for now, J. Alec Machir gets us moving and thinking in the right direction. He says, while we must take note of the fact that the New Testament never quotes the fourth commandment, and Colossians 2.16 rules out any legalistic approach to the question of Sabbath observance, nevertheless, we must be careful to take account of the rather wonderful and deeply theological understanding of the Lord's day given here in Exodus. The Sabbath is to be a sign to the world of our holy separation as the Lord's holy people. And that separation itself is a sign of our determination to fashion our lifestyle in imitation of the Lord. Closed quote. I think that is exactly right. Now, as I said, we'll get into this in greater detail when we do the excursus episode, but I think this is one of the ways that we as Christian people have to re-identify ourselves as distinct from our cultural context. We, above all people, should understand that life is about more than work. Life is about more than, than busyness, these activities. To be God's people fundamentally is to stop and to trust and to prioritize worship, service, and fellowship. It's a way of saying to people that we're, we're trusting in different things, we are committed to different things, and we're following a different course because we are under the lordship of God through Jesus Christ. I think however you want to conceive of it, and there are differences in the details, I think still this pause as characteristic of God's people needs to be, once again, part of our witness to a busy and distracted world. More on that later. Verse 18, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So as we mentioned off the top, Moses received the Ten Commandments orally in chapter 20, verse 1. But here at the conclusion of this section and at the conclusion of Moses' fifth trip up the mountain, he is presented with a written copy, written with the very finger of God. The point seems to be that while the entirety of this revelation is to be understood as binding and authoritative, there is something foundational and essential about these Ten Commandments. They are the holy kernel, you might say, the nuclear center of the whole. That there were two tablets does not mean that five were written on one and five were written on the other. Rather, according to the custom of the day, the whole Ten Commandments were written on both tablets. There were two copies, one for each party in the agreement. These tablets will be placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, which itself will reside at the very heart and center of Israelite worship. The law, the spirit, and the worship. These are the things 
that will mark these liberated slaves as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, before we bring this episode to a close, I think it might be helpful for our listeners if we return briefly to the issue of Sabbath. Yeah, we're hitting all the controversial issues today. Speaking in tongues, spiritual <laughs> gifts, the Sabbath day. What else you got? Yeah, giving, maybe tithing. <laughs> that, that's another episode, though, right? Okay, well, I'm not asking to raise a fuss. These are the issues that are addressed in this chapter, and these are the issues that people are still wrestling with in the modern-day church for more than 3,000 years later. Yeah, absolutely. So help us unpack that a little bit. The, the Sabbath seems like a pretty big deal in the Old Testament. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, God says in verse 13. So should we be keeping the Sabbaths as New Testament Christians? He does say, above all. So how come, by and large, modern-day Christians don't keep the Sabbath? Well, I, I'm not sure I'd put it exactly that way, but I 100% get the essence of your question, and I agree we have to have this conversation. Now, maybe it would be helpful to just go back to that quotation from J. Alec Matier. He said, while we must take note of the fact that the New Testament never quotes the fourth commandment and Colossians 2.16 rules out any legalistic approach to the question of Sabbath observance, nevertheless, we must be careful to take account of the rather wonderful and deeply theological understanding of the Lord's Day given here in Exodus. The Sabbath is to be a sign to the world of our holy separation as the Lord's holy people. And that separation itself is a sign of our determination to fashion our lifestyle in imitation of the Lord, closed quote. Okay, so Matir acknowledges that something changes in terms of how we relate to the Sabbath as we move from Old Testament to New Testament. The Sabbath command is not repeated in the New Testament. In fact, it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament. And that has to be significant. That's not just an accident. Not only that, but as he says, Colossians 2.16 explicitly forbids Christians from having a legalistic approach to the Sabbath. Can you read that to us? Because I think that might be helpful. Yeah, sure. Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, close quote. So obviously the backstory there was that some Gentile Christians were feeling a little bit of heat from the Jewish Christians with respect to dietary code and Sabbath keeping. And Paul says, we're not going to go there, okay? Those things belong to the Old Testament. Those are shadows and anticipations, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we're not to be legalistic anymore about Sabbath keeping. That was something that was for a certain time, and that was saying a certain thing. It was a sign, and it pointed forward in some way to Christ. And since Christ has come, we need to take our eyes off the sign and keep them instead on the thing, on the person that the sign was pointing to, and that, of course, is Jesus. And yet, as Machir says, while all that is true, we should pay more attention to the principles that we're seeing here because they do. And they should actually inform our worship and service of Christ. What we're seeing here in Exodus 31 should remind us that part of our distinctive witness to the world is, in fact, our radical commitment to the worship of Christ. 
Just as the Jews were known in the ancient world as those people who didn't work on the seventh day and, and who wouldn't do this or that on the seventh day and who even shut down the construction of their precious tabernacle on the seventh day, so too we should be known as the people who are radically committed to worshiping Jesus. Now, we worship him first and foremost on the first day of the week because of the resurrection from the dead. But we worship him as our Lord and Savior every day. Every day we rest in him. Every day we prioritize him. So that witness of priority and sacrifice of time and attention that we see in this story needs to inform our modern-day worship of Christ. Christians should be known in this culture for the high value they place on that set-aside day for worship. We should be known as setting aside priority time for worship. Because, as we've been saying again and again and again over the last several weeks, worship matters. It matters in the Old Testament, and it matters in the New Testament. Thanks be to God. Mm, amen. Well, I know that is a controversial issue, but it's an important one, and we want to be drawing our convictions from the Bible. So thank you for walking us through that. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 